a number of lower court federal judges are worried about GPS technologies and location device uh, technologies more generally. We're seeing some of these cases as well in the area of cell site information. This is the location information divulged uh, through use of a cell phone that the government then gets from the cell provider. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from a somewhat uh, overcast Southern California, which we hope is fairly temporary. Uh, not that we have hurricanes out here, Bob, but um, we don't like it when we get them. Um, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And we would like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law. And Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Bob, I know you write a couple of blogs. I do. I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And I, I have to say the hurricane uh, we expected last week turned out to be kind of a bust, uh, but that's okay. And, uh, you know, I'd just like to take a, a second also to thank all the people who, who gave us kind words after last week's show, which was, of course, our 250th show, uh, marking five years of doing this program. Um I know that we all uh, heard from a lot of people by phone and email uh, and direct contact extending their congratulations, and I just want to thank everybody who, who did that. Um, there have been a couple of cases lately dealing with the issue of uh, Fourth Amendment protection uh, regarding GPS monitoring of uh, suspects. Uh, just, uh, I think the most recent was uh, U.S. versus Pineda Moreno out of the Ninth Circuit, uh, in which uh, Judge Kaczynski issued a, a somewhat scathing dissent uh, of a majority decision in that case, uh, allowing uh, DEA agents to uh, go on to somebody's property and install a GPS tracking device on the bottom of the suspect's vehicle. Uh, just a week or so before that, there was a case out of the D.C. Circuit that uh, uh, allowed uh, Fourth Amendment, uh, that suppressed uh, GPS tracking under under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and there have been some cases out of other circuits over the last year or so. Um, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about those today. Well, in the case that you referenced, the Pineda Moreno case, uh, Chief Judge Alex Kaczynski wrote that the vast majority of the 60 million people living in the Ninth Circuit will see their privacy materially diminished by the panel's ruling. But on the other hand, there are some supporters of the ruling that claim that GPS tracking is just like any other mode of surveillance used by law enforcement. Well, as I said, so that's going to be the focus of the show today. We're going to look at uh, this question of Fourth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment uh, and GPS tracking, privacy rights, the role of technology, and the possibility that this or one of these cases will reach the Supreme Court. Well, and our guest today to help us discuss this is a returning guest, Oren Kerr. He is the professor of law at the George Washington University Law School. Professor Kerr teaches 
criminal law, criminal procedure, and computer crime law. Before joining the faculty, Professor Kerr was an honors program trial attorney at the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section of the Criminal Division at the United States Department of Justice, as well as a special assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. Professor Kerr also contributes to the widely popular blog, The Volk Conspiracy. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Kerr. Thank you. Happy to be back. Well, can you give us a little bit of a a start off here by giving us an overview of the Pineda-Moreno case and the other cases that we've seen pending around the country that that, uh, address this issue? Sure. Let me start with uh, two Supreme Court cases in the 1980s, which really frame the issue here. Uh, In a 1983 case, United States versus Knotts, the Supreme Court said that the Fourth Amendment does not require uh, a warrant or any oversight if the government installs a location device, in that case a radio beeper, uh, to monitor the location of an individual in public, in that case on city streets and public public uh, venues. In the Caro case in 1984, the next year, the Supreme Court says that not is limited to public surveillance. Uh, the government needs a warrant if it wants to install a monitoring device to monitor somebody's location inside a home. So the question raised by these new GPS cases is how does that apply to GPS? Is, are GPS devices like uh, the earlier radio devices, which generally required somebody to be uh, a police officer to be nearby and to watch, uh, uh, say, you know, within a mile or so and, and to uh, follow the car, whereas GPS devices allow the government to conduct more surveillance. They don't need a person to be there watching it uh, or following the car in order to get the location information. Now, mo- two federal courts had weighed in on this issue. Um, you, Judge Kaczynski's dissent has gotten a tremendous amount of uh, press attention, and he makes some claims in there that are not really terribly accurate. Uh, one is this idea that, you know, that this is the end of the Fourth Amendment, everyone's privacy rights have materially diminished, etc. Actually, no federal court had said that GPS surveillance uh, triggers Fourth Amendment protection until last month uh, in the United States versus Maynard case, uh, which adopted an entirely new theory of Fourth Amendment protection, that you look at the Fourth Amendment as a mosaic uh, rather than look at the individual steps that the government takes, indicating that GPS monitoring over a period of a month could be a search, whereas GPS monitoring over a short period of time is not a search. So Judge Kaczynski is, is, is um, uh, writing a very stirring dissent in which he says, you know, you know privacy has ended. He, he says, you know, this is like Soviet Russia. This is kind of the end of privacy. Actually, though, uh, no federal court has suggested uh, that GPS monitoring is always a search, uh, and the only court to suggest that it is ever a search is this recent D.C. Circuit opinion from last uh, last month. So this is a, a, actually an issue on which these 1980s Supreme Court cases had suggested. If you if you assume GPS is like radio monitoring, that the line here is between public surveillance and private surveillance. And in the Pineda Moreno case, it was uh, agreed to be public surveillance. The monitoring was of a physical, uh, outside, uh, out in a field in particular, was the uh, GPS information that was used in that case. Well, we should say we actually invited Judge Kaczynski to be on the program today. Uh, needless to say, he, he declined. Uh, That's too bad. Uh, because of, because of his involvement in this case, uh, um, although he he has been on our program in the past. But, you know, it, I mean, is it is it important that his dissent focused 
it didn't focus directly on the GPS device so much as on the way in which they installed the device. Is that fair yeah, to say? This is, this is the other aspect of the case, which is, which is sort of odd. So let me step back a little bit and explain it. Uh, in this case, the Panena Moreno case, the government went on the suspect's driveway, uh, installed the device on the suspect's car in the driveway. Most courts have said that the government can do that without a warrant because the driveway is part of the open fields near the house, not part of the curtilage. Now, here we have a, a, a traditional Fourth Amendment distinction between open fields and curtilage, which is a hazy, hazy test. The idea being there's some places right next to the home that are essentially part of the home, and the government needs a warrant to go on them. What makes the Panetta Moreno case so odd, to my mind, is that the government in that case conceded that the driveway was part of the curtilage, which was probably wrong. Then, in the opinion, the, the panel opinion, which came out back in January, the Ninth Circuit says, the government concedes that they entered onto the curtilage. However, we hold that that was okay. Essentially, taking away the government's concession. Then, Judge Kaczynski steps in and says, well, this is all about protecting the curtilage. The Ninth Circuit an original panel from January uh, takes away our curtilage rights. But what makes it so odd is that the driveway has generally not been considered part of the curtilage in, in most cases. So uh, the way I look at that aspect of the court's opinion, um, the Ninth Circuit panel reached a result that is probably right, but did so incorrectly because the government had conceded that the driveway was part of the curtilage. So, to my mind, if I if I were uh, on the ninth, you know, if I were a law clerk to a ninth circuit judge, I would say the government loses because the government conceded this, although the government shouldn't have conceded this. So, <laughs> so it's a little bit of an unusual situation for Judge Kaczynski to suggest this is sort of the end of curtilage privacy, given that what's really happening is that the government conceded a point it shouldn't have conceded. It's it, it's funny that he. Uh, paints this almost as a class issue in in his discussion of this. I mean, he 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 has a couple of paragraphs in which he talks about the fact that uh, judges uh, tend to be from a more privileged class than than the defendant in this case, and they may have driveways that are closed off by gates uh, and and uh, garages with uh, you know remote openers and, and that and that sort of thing. Uh, is he is there any legitimacy to to looking at it that way. I don't think so. And, and here, I guess I would ask, um, I would ask listeners to, to, to consider this. Um, you know, I, I don't think I know anybody who lives in a gated community. Gated communities, as I understand them, are very uh, common in Southern California. Judge Kaczynski's in Pasadena. Um, but he makes a class claim based on what seems to be a very specific understanding of uh, uh, how certain people live that seems to be itself a notion rooted in class. Um, it, at least to me, may, maybe other people have different experience. I don't think of wealthy people as not having publicly accessible driveways. Um, that, that's at least my experience. Maybe, maybe I have the quirky experience and Judge Kaczynski has the, the common one, but at least that's, that's been my experience. So it's, that struck me as a very odd aspect, or I probably at this point I should say another odd aspect of Judge Kaczynski's opinion, um, uh, although it certainly drew a lot of press attention. And I think one of the features of, of Judge Kaczynski's Fourth Amendment dissent is to draw the public into this. And, and 
And on that ground, uh, his opinion has been a smashing success. Uh, in fact, his opinion led to all this press coverage, led to a tremendous amount of attention on the issue, so much that the press coverage of this question has treated Judge Kaczynski's dissent, which was just a dissent from denial of rehearing on Bonk, as the opinion in the case. And nobody paid attention to this issue in January when the panel reached this decision. Instead, everybody's paying attention to the dissent because it was this stirring dissent uh, that's written in a very gripping way. It's, it's the kind of dissent which, which grabs attention, and, and it has. Well, Oren, you are, you are, uh, I am one of those people who happen to live in a gated community, and personally, I... <laughs> I knew you were going to say that, Craig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, and I, do, and I do live in Southern California. Um, oh, well, but then I, that, that might explain I, it. I think this is a great question, actually. In fact, I've heard people raise the concerns about gated communities, and when I've asked them where they live, they always do say California. So I, I don't know if it's a California-specific thing, and... and Ninth Circuit specific thing, I, I don't know, but at least I here, here we that. call it the correctional institution. But that's, <laughs> you're right. I've been There's on vacation for a while, there, but, now but that's I'm another uh, another segment. Now, and and personally, I view my driveway as my property, and um, I would say that in gated communities, I've even seen my neighbors kind of claim the the street in front of their house is their property. They can consider everything around their house to be theirs and uh, not part of the public. And of course, in a gated community, the city that we live in does not own the streets. The Homeowners Association owns the streets, which puts a whole nother twist on it because the Homeowners Association um, is a common, uh, and we all have common easements and access to the uh, streets that in our community. Like we, I live in a gated community of 1,600 homes. So well, and, and it turns out, though, that, that what property you think is yours, and in fact, what is gated, does not govern under the curtilage versus open fields test. And maybe it should, but, but it turns out it, it doesn't. And this goes back to a 1987 Supreme Court case called United States versus Dunn, uh, in which a guy was, uh, uh, he was, had some sort of a meth lab or something like that, um, on private property that was about a mile from a public road. And he had barbed wire fences and a whole series of different fences. And the government jumped over the fences and came onto his private property, marked private property. And the Supreme Court said it's still open fields. It's not curtilage. So that, what, what, what that case suggests uh, is, and what lower courts have generally said is that the curtilage where the government needs a warrant to go is, is really right up to the home. It's, it's, it's basically places that are so intimately a part of the home that they're almost inside. And an example of that, I think, would be um, going up to a window where you can peer into the kitchen. Um, if you go, say, on the side of a property and peer inside, at that point, you're almost inside. You can see anything that somebody inside can see. And so courts will say that that is the curtilage. Um, so, so, and, and, and I, should, I should say, when I'm discussing this doctrine, I am in no way defending it. It is weird. It is a mushy four-factor test, and it is a very odd idea. But that's the current state of the law. Um, and generally, most lower courts have said that a driveway where people uh, you know, oftentimes come in and out, the mailman comes in and out to drop off the mail, uh, uh, people come to, to visit, uh, that that is part of the open field, not the curtilage, because it's an area that people travel. Warren, you wrote critically on the uh, Volokh conspiracy of the of the uh, D.C. Circuit's decision in uh, U.S. versus Maynard. Uh, can, can you 
set the stage for us a little bit on that case? I mean, what, what, what was different in that case from, from the case in the Ninth Circuit, uh, and, and how did that play out? Yeah, so this is a case from the D.C. Circuit decided just a few weeks ago. Uh, and what made that case different is that the government installed a GPS device on the suspect's car and watched the suspect for about a month. It's not entirely clear from the court's opinion how the government, how the prosecution used that evidence. There's a footnote that kind of suggests it. And what the footnote suggests is that the location of the car was used to show involvement in a broad narcotics conspiracy. So the, the government was monitoring a bunch of members of the conspiracy, and when they would you know, make a phone call that would go out or some signal would go out, they would all move to a certain location. And, and, and the government used the fact that Maynard's car was one that moved to that location to show Maynard's involvement in the conspiracy, to show he was part of the group. What makes the D.C. Circuit opinion not only unusual, but uh, uh, really sort of standing on, stands on its own in Fourth Amendment law, is that the D.C. Circuit, an opinion by Judge Ginsburg, said that to determine what is a search, we don't look at whether individual police steps are a search. Instead, we look at whether combining the entire month of activity, that conduct invaded privacy. So in other words, uh, uh, to determine what the government needs, when the government needs a warrant, you don't look at, you know, the individual step of entering the home, the individual step of watching somebody walk down the street. Instead, you look at the mosaic of all of the government's conduct over weeks, over months, and consider whether that conduct requires a warrant. And so in the Maynard case, the, the D.C. Circuit says, one month of following somebody's location through a GPS device is too much. Now, one obvious question that raises is, well, what would be not too much? How, how, how much can the government monitor without getting a warrant? And the D.C. Circuit opinion just does not provide any, any ideas of that. So it seems from the D.C. Circuit's opinion that a short-term amount of monitoring with a GPS device would be okay, but a long-term device, at least one month's worth, is not. That would require a warrant. What types of limitations are we going to be seeing on this as the future goes forward? Do you think that these cases are going to stick the way they are, or do you think that they're going to get restricted a little bit further? I think what we're seeing in the last six months or so is that a lot or a number of lower court federal judges are worried about GPS technologies and location device uh, technologies more generally. We're seeing some of these cases as well in the area of cell site information. This is the location information divulged uh, through use of a cell phone that the government then gets from the cell provider. We're seeing a lot of concern among the lower court judges about how what, what privacy laws should regulate access to all of this kind of location information. And so there are a couple possibilities about what's going to happen next. Uh, one significant possibility is that the lower courts are going to continue to divide on this and that within, say, three or four years, the Supreme Court is going to step back in and take a look again at this distinction drawn in Caro versus Knotts in the 1980s between the public surveillance and the private surveillance. And, and so it, we may just be sort of on our way to a new Supreme Court opinion a few years from now. The other possibility is that Congress is going to step in and regulate this uh, uh, more carefully than it has. So uh, 
Congress has actually been having hearings and is going to be having another hearing soon on what the statutory privacy laws should be for location information. And that may be another way in which these cases end up sort of raising public attention that influences the privacy laws through the statutes instead of through the Fourth Amendment. So I think what we're seeing is the beginning sort of rumblings of change judges unhappy with the current state of the law. We're beginning to see disagreement. And so you can sort of look forward to to this keeping working its way through the courts up to the Supreme Court and then also working its way through sort of having uh, implications for Congress. We need to take a break. When we return, we'll talk more about the Fourth Amendment and how this case and others could potentially go to the Supreme Court. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Keep up with the fast pace of the legal profession. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all of our great legal podcasts. They're free. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're joined by Oren Kerr, professor of law at the George Washington University Law School. What is it that, Oren, what is it that people can do to protect themselves against um, GPS surveillance by the government? Do they have to park their car in the garage? Do they have to erect a fence? What is it that's going to send a signal to the police that you can't put a GPS device on my car while it's parked on my property? Uh, well... <laughs> Uh, let us assume, I'll assume you're asking the question because we're worried that the police are putting GPS devices on entirely innocent people, and we want to make sure that the uh, innocent people are not being monitored. Uh, in that case, my advice to uh, the innocent individuals uh, is to check your car. So the GPS device is a physical uh, uh, device the size of a box of soap, which is then uh, given some adhesive and stuck to the underside of the car. Uh, as far as I can tell, there is no legal problem if you discover such a device on your car with throwing it away. 
Um, and if you've thrown it away, the government can't use it. So that's one self-help measure, again, <laughs> assuming uh, that I'm giving advice to innocent people, not uh, folks committing a crime. And of course, the easy advice, if you are committing a crime, is stop. Um, but, uh, but I think uh, th- th- this is a significant limitation in the government's use of this sort of monitoring, is that, is that the GPS devices, the government's own devices, can be removed. Now, that doesn't uh, that doesn't deal with other kinds of monitoring. So, for example, cell site location, uh, location device, uh, location information provided by a cellular phone when it's turned on, that information uh, can't be, uh, you know, it's not like you can take the phone away. You could just not use a phone, or you could turn your phone off. That's one way of, of stopping the information from being collected. But uh, part of using the technology is that is that the this information is created, the cell site information is needed to deliver the call. That's how the phone company knows where to put the call and where to receive the call. So, so the information is generated, and in terms of what happens to it, I mean, you know, that, that becomes a question for the law, where if you have strong opinions about it, go to Congress. Um, uh, this is some, as I said, this is something that Congress, in particular, the Judiciary Committee on the House side, has been looking at carefully and will be continuing to look at carefully. Uh, so, you know, the, the old advice, call your congressman, may actually have uh, an impact here because Congress is trying to figure out what to do with this area of law. Well, Oren, you're, you're a former U.S. attorney. What, what do you see as the right approach to this? If you were writing the law, how would you write it to craft the right balance between personal privacy and, and the ability to investigate, uh, you know, possible criminal conduct? Well, well, first I should clarify, I was a special assistant U.S. attorney, which is about as far from a U.S. attorney as you can get in the federal criminal justice system. Uh, so I wouldn't want to uh, take, that, uh, take that label. But um, in terms of the right answer, I think uh, for a starting point would be that the government needs to get a uh, specific and articulable facts court order whenever it's getting location information. That would be true for cell site information. That would be true for GPS information. Uh, that would require the government to get this threshold court order before installing a device, before getting this information. Uh, and then the trick is that would require the government to go to a federal judge, explain the case, explain why the information is thought to be helpful. It's not quite a probable cause threshold. Um, and I think the potential difficulty with the probable cause threshold is you run into the question of probable cause of what, uh, and what is the particularity of the uh, uh, of the amount of information you're obtaining, and over what crimes does it apply, and what resolution of location information. Um, those are really tricky questions. I'm totally open to the idea that there may be a warrant requirement in some settings, and and clearly under Caro there would be for information inside the home. Um, as a Fourth Amendment matter. But, but uh, exactly where the lines should be drawn are actually pretty tricky, and I'm not entirely sure of how I would resolve it. But I think one uh, minimum threshold, which I think would answer a lot of these problems and deal with the dragnet concern, certainly, would be the requirement whenever the government gets location information of this specific and articulable facts court order. Have we seen, or what's the, has the government attempted to use cell phones as a means of tracking as an alternate to uh, GPS? Is that something that we're going to be seeing in the future? We've seen this already. This is actually something that uh, um, is quite current. In fact, there was a Third Circuit opinion uh, just yesterday handed down a much-awaited opinion on what the legal standards are for obtaining court orders to get the phone company to disclose the location information. 
Now, historical cell site information, these stored records held by the phone company, tend not to be terribly uh, precise. The information might be that somebody was uh, you know, within a few square blocks, not that they were within a specific place. Uh, but that information is, is absolutely is used in criminal cases uh, because it can, for example, uh, disprove uh, an attempted alibi. Uh, it can show an individual was in the neighborhood of a crime at the time it occurred. Uh, that kind of location information can be just even very general location, showing somebody was in that city, uh, was in that rough location, uh, can be very helpful for the government, and we're seeing uh, an increasing number of these cases. But your your feeling, or if I'm understanding you, is that 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 kind of information, the cell phone information, the GPS information, should be available upon a request to a judge, but 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 with less than probable cause. What 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 is the standard then? I mean, how do you how do you justify that uh, without without some reason to believe? Uh, is the standard some reason to believe that there may be criminal conduct going no, on? No, it's the same standard as the uh, law uses for a Terry stop. So it's the standard the government would use to stop someone and order them to stop and ask, you know, answer questions for a half hour or something like that. It's specific and articulable facts to believe that the information to be obtained would be relevant and material to an ongoing criminal investigation. That is the standard that's used. So it's basically a midway point between a subpoena and a warrant. Um, so so that, that, that's the standard I'm suggesting should be a, a threshold standard. Maybe high, higher privacy protection, maybe a full warrant protection for um, uh, some types of particularly precise uh, location information. I'm not really sure. The, the, the problem becomes, once you say a warrant should be required, is, is figuring out when it should be required. So let's say the government just wants to, to, to make sure, to, to prove that somebody was not in California when they say they were in California, and they want to show that cell site records show that the individual's phone was in New York. Should a warrant be required for that? Um, I don't think so, because the technology is substituting for something which would be openly visible in public, namely somebody's location at just a very bare-bones level of what state they were in or what part of the country they were in. Um, I don't think that's so private information that uh, a search warrant should be required, the same level of cause that would, would be required to search somebody's home and rifle through their, rifle through their closets and go through all their stuff. So um, the difficulty is if you say that there isn't a warrant requirement for some information, um, what kind of information should trigger the warrant requirement? And I, I, I find this a genuinely difficult problem because there's issues of the resolution of the technology. There's issues of the amount, uh, the, the location of the information. Maybe that should be relevant. Uh, and then there's issues of how much information is disclosed. So here's one, here's one way we could do it. Um, focus on the timing of how long the monitoring occurs. So you could say that there's a search warrant requirement, but for how long can the government then monitor? Um, if you have a shorter time period in which the government's allowed to monitor, you can then, I think, have a lower threshold of the court order. So, for example, you might say that a 2703D order, this intermediate specific and articulable facts threshold that's currently used in the law, um, applies, but it only can be used to obtain location information on a particular day. And if the government wants to know location information on another day, they need to get a different court order. In that way, the timing of the order actually can substitute for the threshold of privacy, uh, and you need to consider both of those in crafting the court order requirement. 
I mean, it seems to be a big difference between a Terry stop, which is, isn't it? I mean, generally under somewhat exigent or immediate circumstances and, and monitoring somebody over the course of a month with a GPS device or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's two aspects of it, I think. There's the monitoring someone and what threshold the government should have to follow to, 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 to have to get a court order to watch their location or the location of their car, really, not, not them, but closely related, their car. Uh, and then there's how long the monitoring occurs. And, and I think the Maynard court was wrong in creating the mosaic theory as a matter of Fourth Amendment law. There's really no support in Fourth Amendment law for that approach. But the court was absolutely onto something from a policy standpoint, which is the length of time in which the monitoring is allowed to occur is absolutely critical to what court order should be allowed. And, and I think, I, you know, we, we should focus not only on the threshold, but the amount of time in which the court uh, order is allowed to, to be operative. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, Oren, and it's time to uh, wrap up, get your final thoughts along with your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they have further questions. So if well, you would, please. Well, first, thanks for having me. Happy to be on the show again. Uh, I think the key thing to remember is that this is an area of law which is changing. Uh, you know, if you're a defense attorney and you have some location uh, it, some location information that was used, you should be making Fourth Amendment challenges. You should be citing Maynard. You should be citing uh, Judge Kaczynski's dissent. You should be citing this new Third Circuit opinion that came out yesterday. Uh, this is a whole new area of law in which the courts are really struggling to get it right. And, and if you're working in this area, especially if you're a defense attorney in this area, you should be aware of these cases and you should be making motions to suppress based on them. Uh, for the rest of us that are looking at it, it's going to be a fascinating area to watch over the next couple of years. Uh, uh, in terms of my own views on it, I, I often post them at the Volokh Conspiracy, uh, V-O-L-O-K-H.com, Volokh.com. Uh, in fact, I'll have a post on the new Third Circuit case up uh, shortly. So, so uh, come on and visit, as they say. Uh, uh, I often do post about these topics of law. Well, we'll let you Great. go so you can get, get your post done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Really fascinating discussion and, and great insights on all of this. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show. And Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And uh, any uh, any of our listeners who are interested in trying to get CLE credit for the program can go to the Legal Talk Network and click on the link to the West Legal Ed Center where they can uh, listen to Lawyer to Lawyer and get CLE credit at the same time. And again, we'd like to thank Oren Kerr for being on our show today. And you can find all of our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes as well. We'll see you again next week. See you next week. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. 
Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.